programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and with support from the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting the American classic Twelve Angry Men with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Jeffrey Tabin was a high-achieving Harvard Medical School student from the suburbs of Chicago who was also an accomplished mountain climber. For example, he was the fourth person to reach the famed Seven Summits, the tallest peak on each continent. And it was through high-altitude climbing that he first came to witness the dramatic effects of cataract surgery on blind villagers. In fact, uh, four out of five uh, people in developing world uh, who are functionally blind are unnecessarily so. And before becoming Nepal's most celebrated doctor, Dr. Sandokrit grew up in uh, rural eastern Nepalese village where he became intimately equated with the uh, human costs of inadequate access to health care. In the face of heavy skepticism from other ophthalmologists, Dr. Reet uh, created innovative surgery techniques, went on to prove that high-quality eye care could be successfully delivered in places typically considered unsanitary by Western standards. So together, these two ophthalmologists, Dr. Tabin and Dr. Reet, have dedicated their lives to restoring sight to blind people in some of the most isolated, impoverished reaches of developing countries. They founded the Himalayan Cataract Project in 1995, and now a book, Second Sons, Two Doctors and Their Amazing Quest to Restore Sight and Save Lives by Oliver David Rellin has been published describing their work. Dr. Tabin is based in Salt Lake City. He is Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences and Director of International Ophthalmology at the John A. Moran Eye Center at University of Utah. And he joins us for the hour today. Uh, Dr. Taven, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. It's an honor to be with you. We appreciate you uh, being with us. Uh, so this, uh, of course, is a very worthwhile uh, project. You're doing amazing work. Uh, before we get into the Himalayan uh, Cataract Project, I want to uh, review some things in your biography. Grew up in uh, Chicago, ended up at uh, Harvard Medical School. Did you, did you always want to be a doctor? What was the plan? Um, you know, it wasn't really I always wanted to be a doctor. I always... You know, liked sciences. I had a grandmother who had been a medical student in Riga, Latvia before World War II and uh, had emigrated to the States and she always had kind of a focus on medicine being something that you could help the world with. And both my parents were academics, but uh, it wasn't until I actually uh, got to college and I had a roommate uh, uh, named Howie Luber, who had had uh, two uh, two siblings who had uh, passed away, and was very passionate about becoming a doctor. That uh, over sort of late night conversations, my freshman year in college is sort of when I really began to focus on being a doctor. Then you took a I don't know if you can get into this a detour. Very interesting <laughs> uh, side trip to Oxford as a Marshall Scholar, uh, Masters in Philosophy. Well, that really did change my life. I went to uh, Yale as an undergraduate, and I had always done a lot of uh, athletics. I played a lot of sports in high school. I played uh, university tennis. I did a lot of rock climbing. And I was thinking about orthopedic surgery. There were a couple of charismatic people in my life who were orthopedic surgeons. And I would probably be a uh, uh, sports medicine uh, specialist right now if I didn't have the opportunity to go to Oxford. I, I got to Oxford and it was a two-year scholarship to basically do whatever I wanted. I, um, I read philosophy, but I looked at comparative healthcare systems and healthcare delivery, and in particular healthcare delivery uh, between uh, in the developed world versus the developing world and the economics and human costs of healthcare. In the meantime, you were active in mountain climbing. Where, where did that begin? Well, you know, I started out rock climbing at a little place called Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, in, uh, in just about four hours north from where we lived. And in those days, the ethos in most of the climbing world was uh, that you climbed a mountain from the bottom up, or you climbed a rock from the bottom up, and if you uh, the leader could never fall, and if you touched a piece of uh, your gear, it wasn't really a good, clean ascent. And Devil's Lake had sort of was a little backwater place with a short, about 60-foot cliff that had uh, trees above it. This was well before the indoor rock climbing revolution. 
And we used to uh, just put a rope around a tree and do uh, what's called top rope climbing, where we would just do our hardest possible gymnastic rock climbing. And we would fall and hang on the rope and just see what the hardest thing we could do with, uh, with the rope up above us for safety. And we were a little ahead of the curve on that. I was just sort of lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And so when I came to uh, college, I uh, ended up climbing with a couple of friends. Uh, I began climbing at a place called the Shawangunks in upstate New York. And having worked on problems that were right at my limit and above, I was a reasonably okay uh, rock climber and began during my college years, focusing on climbing big walls, going out to Yosemite and climbing routes on El Capitan, Half Dome. And I was a, a moderately okay climber when I got to Oxford. I found at Oxford that not only did Oxford have a school schedule that was eight-week term, then a six-week break, then an eight-week term, then a six-week break, and an eight-week term, then a three-month break, but I also... Uh, had the access to indigenous trust funds that were remnants of the time when Oxford students were uh, supposed to civilize various aspects of the world. And in particular, there were a couple of climbing grants. There was one called the AC Irvine Grant for Oxford students to enjoy a strenuous holiday in mountains abroad that was given in memory of uh, Andrew Irvine, who uh, died with Mallory on Everest in 1924. And it turned out that the more exotic of a location you could choose, the more cash money they gave you. And as a result, uh, my partner and I were able to travel uh, to the developing world, to travel to Asia, to Africa, which fit in just beautifully with my looking at comparative healthcare systems and seeing really uh, the real crisis in world healthcare and by the time I finished at Oxford, my focus had shifted from being someone who wanted to think of a better way to help an athlete recover full function of their knee to thinking about wanting to do something about the disparity between health care in the poor countries of the world and the developed world. And in the meantime, uh, the, the person who became would become your colleague... Uh, Dr. Sanduk uh, Reit uh, in Nepal. His is a is an incredible story. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about him. He he grew up in a rural village and ended up as a as an ophthalmologist. Quite a journey. Yeah, he, he's the most amazing man I've met on the planet. You know, I went to Yale as an undergraduate. I went to Harvard. I went to Oxford, and I've never met anyone close to as brilliant in terms of both his insights, his ability to think outside the box on problems and assimilate, and really just in every, every category of brilliant, uh, Sandik Ruid is the most brilliant man I've ever met. And uh, colleague is, is what I, I dream of, but I really, I mean, he is really the genius behind everything that we've done. I'm kind of the enthusiastic fat boy who plays because I bring the ball. But he really is, is the spirit and genius behind everything. Uh, Sandik grew up in a small hill village, four days' walk from the nearest road, uh, just in the shadows of the third highest mountain in the world, Mount Kachinjunga, in far northeastern Nepal. His father was a trader who used to trade uh, salt for raw goods crossing the passes into Tibet. And there were no schools, there were obviously no electricity, no running water where uh, Sanda grew up. And you know, it also often amazes me because I'm working now in, in a lot of very poor areas, particularly in Africa, and I'll see someone in a very remote, uh, destitute hut, and I'll think, wow, what would have happened to me had I been born into those circumstances? And Sanduk, at age eight, um, was noticed by some monks to have exceptional energy and intelligence. And the monks convinced his father that he really needed to take his son for education. And they brought Sanduk, it was an eight-day walk over many passes to get to the nearest school, which was in Darjeeling, India. And his father left him. And he did not see another family member for two years. And at age 80, he started his education. He uh, did well enough in school that he won a full scholarship to uh, the medical school in Mysore, India. And when he finished his medical school, he uh, actually scored number one on all of India's medical exams. 
So if every Indian medical student, and lots of them are very smart and work very hard, he topped out the exam and won a full scholarship to study ophthalmology in uh, uh, the sort of Harvard Medical School of India at the All India Medical Institute of Medical Sciences in Delhi. And from there, he uh, uh, came back to Nepal. He did a survey of blindness of the country, began formulating what needed to be done, and his brilliance was noticed by some outside uh, doctors, and he went first to retrain in the Netherlands and become a master of microsurgery, and then he went to Australia for two years and uh, lived at the home of another hero of mine, uh, Fred Hollis, and uh, uh, began really formulating how could you bring the absolute best quality care in very high volume at a very low price to the people who need it most. And that really is the key, isn't it? If, if, if you or I had a cataract, we could, uh, you know, in the U.S., we could probably get some surgery. We could get that taken care of. But uh, that statistic I quoted earlier, that's staggering. Four out of five people in the developing world who are blind uh, don't need to be blind. Yeah, absolutely. 90% of the blindness on our planet is in the developing world. And of that, 80% is needless. Uh, when, you, when you talk about absolute numbers, the number of people who are blind, and this, and this is the World Health Organization definition. In America, we give benefits for being legally blind if you can see two lines down the eye chart. You see the big E, and you can see the next two, the SL, but you can't see anything more. You get benefits for being legally blind. In uh, uh, the World Health Organization statistic is people who cannot carry out the acts of daily living. So you can't see your food. You can't see to get dressed. You can't see the shadow of a hand moving right in front of your face. And it's right now about 45 million people on our planet are blind. Mm. And uh, in America, we have one ophthalmologist for every 18,000 people. And we have so many great cataract surgeons. You know, if I don't do your cataract surgery at the Moran Eye Center, my partner Alan Crandall is just as good. If Alan doesn't do it, we have another four doctors here at the Moran Eye Center who are as good as you get for cataract surgery. Around Utah, we have so many great cataract surgeons. When Sondek was in Nepal before he went to Australia, there was no one, zero, none, for a country of 30 million people doing any modern cataract surgery. Hmm. Right now in sub-Saharan Africa, we have about one eye surgeon per million population. In South Sudan, where we've been recently, uh, there's no eye surgeon for a country of 9 million people. In Ethiopia right now, there are uh, 77 ophthalmologists for 80 million people, but of those, 40 live in the capital. So much of the country, again, has you know, one ophthalmologist for three million people. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Dr. Jeff Tabin. Uh, he is uh, one of the founders of the Himalayan Cataract Project. He's uh, currently chairman of the, the project. Founded that with uh, Dr. Sanduk Reet uh, from Nepal. And uh, t- together, they end uh, and apart. I imagine uh, they, they go uh, several times a year to uh, developed er- developing areas of the world and perform as many eye surgeries as they can in these uh, camps. Uh, Dr. Sandukrit uh, developed an innovative uh, way of uh, doing cataract surgery, which uh, uh, really revolutionized this. And uh, they've got the price down, I think, Dr. Taven, down to about $25. Right? Actually, less. Well, the material costs for a surgery are now about $12 for all of the <laughs> everything we use that we dispose of that we... Um, you know, the interocular lens, all of the medicines, materials. Uh, when you look into human costs, the cost of transport and feeding patients, it really depends. You know, when you have to transport a patient further and, and house them and their family for a couple of days, you know, we say that the average cost per surgery we do is about $50, but the cost, material cost is about 12 Mm, amazing. And for people who come into the clinic and have surgery at the clinic, when you add in human cost, time, time of nurses and doctors, it's about $20. 
We're going to take a brief break, and uh, when we come back, we will um, continue our discussion. We'll talk about, uh, I'll have uh, Dr. Tabin tell me about some of the people uh, for whom he has performed this surgery and uh, the impact on their lives. Uh, This has become a passion for him and for Dr. Reet. We'll give you some more information about the Himalayan Cataract Project. And um, uh, and we'll uh, talk about uh, a little bit more uh, about uh, Dr. Reet's innovation here, uh, which are really revolutionized uh, the surgery, and uh, talk about the overall picture, um, which uh, Dr. Tabin studied at uh, Oxford, how to get healthcare out to the developing world, uh, and I imagine he has some thoughts beyond eye surgery. More following the break. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Hi, this is Mark Larez Casanova from the Utah Master Naturalist Program at Utah State University Extension. Imagine if prehistoric brine shrimp who were responsible for one of the finest examples of architecture in Salt Lake City today. Okay, so it may be a bit of a stretch, but let me explain. In a previous episode of Wild About Utah, I discussed the life cycle of brine shrimp and the important role that they play in the Great Salt Lake ecosystem. Well, as billions of brine shrimp feed on bacteria in Great Salt Lake, they excrete waste in the form of tiny fecal pellets. These pellets, along with sand grains and other bits of debris, eventually settle to the bottom of Great Salt Lake. In shallow areas of the lake, where wind and waves routinely mix the water, these small particles gradually accumulate layers of calcium carbonate, forming an oolite, spelled O-O-L-I-T-E. This is very similar to how a pearl, also layers of calcium carbonate around a small particle, is formed within the shell of an oyster or mussel. The main difference, aside from a pearl being much larger, is that oolites are typically oblong rather than round. The beaches on the west side of Antelope Island are a great place to find oolitic sand, which look and feel as though you have a handful of tiny pearls. Around 50 million years ago, large fresh and saltwater lakes covered parts of Utah, and in these areas, vast amounts of sediments, including oolites, were deposited. Over time, these oolites were compressed and cemented together into limestone. A quarry near Ephraim in San Pete County supplied oolitic limestone for the construction of the governor's mansion in 1902 and the original Salt Lake City Public Library in 1905. The library building, located at 15 South State Street, eventually housed the Hanson Planetarium and is now home to the O.C. Tanner flagship store. The building underwent an extensive restoration just a couple of years ago and now serves as a shining example of neoclassical architecture in our capital city. The truth is, there are tens of millions of years separating oolitic limestone from our modern-day brine shrimp. So we can't exactly say that prehistoric brine shrimp were responsible for the existence of the O.C. Tanner building. But it's fun to imagine precious gems from around the world housed in a beautiful building constructed from the pearls of Great Salt Lake. For Wild About Utah, I'm Mark Larez Casanova. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of specialty salads, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, Dr. Jeff Tabin. 
Uh, he is at the Moran Eye Center at University of Utah, and he is a chairman and co-founder of the Himalayan Cataract Project. It was founded in 1995 with uh, his colleague Dr. Sandukrit from Nepal. They are working to eradicate preventable and curable blindness through high-quality ophthalmic care, education, and establishment of world-class eye care infrastructure in the Himalayas and Sub-Saharan Africa. A new book on their work by Oliver David Rellin, Second Sons, Two Doctors, and Their Amazing Quest to resource, Restore Sight and Save Lives, is just out. We're talking with uh, Dr. Tabin. I wonder, Dr. Tabin, if you could uh, describe for us the, uh, the the breakthrough, the innovation that uh, Dr. Reed uh, developed. This has to do with uh, the fact that in many areas in the developing world, you don't have what the West would consider sanitary conditions, right? No electricity, hard to get clean water, uh, maybe uh, operating on a person uh, lying on a bed of plywood. Well, you know, there, there are quite a few innovations. I think the really big breakthrough was the realization that everyone needs a lens implant. In the 1950s, a British um, physician named Harold Ridley operated on some RAF pilots who had windshield blown into their eye. And he found that this was inert over a number of years and postulated that one could replace the crystalline lens of the eye, which is a protein structure that lies just behind the, uh, the pupil, with a lens implant that would restore natural focus. By the 1960s, this was really becoming standard practice, and by the 1970s, certainly, most Americans having cataract surgery would have this lens implant placed. And in the 1980s, it was still the, a very crude procedure that was a remnant of the 1940s that was done in the developing world, where one would basically splice the eye in half, take the whole crystalline lens out, and give thick Coke bottle-like glasses that, one, provide very poor focus, and, uh, two, a big distortion when you look off the center of the lens. And... Uh, the number two cause of blindness in Nepal at the time were the people who had those glasses and then lost them. And the number three cause were, uh, was just bad surgery. Um, and so the top three causes of blindness were all from, from cataracts. And uh, Dr. Reed felt that everyone needs the same highest quality cataract surgery. One problem was that the least expensive lens implant on the world market at the time was around $200 which made it absolutely prohibitive to the developing world. So while he was in Australia, he began thinking these are, you know, little polymethyl methacrylate chips of lenses. Why should they cost hundreds of dollars? And he, along with uh, Fred Hollows, began uh, planning and raising money to start a manufacturing facility to bring the material costs down. And Specific, they began manufacturing the lens implants in 1994, uh, the year before I became involved, which brought the cost of the interocular lenses down from $250 to four. And that was really a big economic breakthrough. A second was developing better microsurgical techniques and less expensive, very high-quality microscopes, which were also at that time manufactured. He'd been living in Australia, developing these microscopes. The next thing was a development of a flow of surgery and a real uh, uh, way of delivering care where no one does anything that someone with lesser training could do. So that we don't have trained nurses putting in eye drops. We don't have trained ophthalmic technicians leading a blind patient from one point to another. So everybody works up to their absolute maximal potential. And then a way of sterilizing using copious amounts of betadine. And betadine is a wonderful uh, antiseptic. It's a little bit caustic to the eye so that when you put it directly onto the eye, it uh, tends to cause a little bit of an inflammatory reaction. People have a scratchy eye for a few hours and it gets a little bit red, but it's extremely effective at preventing postoperative infections and utilizing high-quality uh, antibiotic and pharmaceuticals manufactured in India, which were just beginning then, using quite a bit more on the sterilization technique and then using multiple instrument sets 
to keep a flow going, uh, Dr. Rui was able to develop a system where a surgeon, you know, in Nepal, utilizing Dr. Rui's system, I've done more than 100 cataracts in a day. Hmm. Whereas uh, in America, I have not done more than 20 in a day. And it's not the, the actual surgery. I take my time and do perfect surgery on every surgery I do, but it's really the efficiency of the system in creating the sterile environment specifically for each um, each eye and not thinking what are the uh, regulations for the operating room that they're using for heart surgery. We have to duplicate that, but creating the system where it's absolutely the safest it can be for eye surgery and really lowering the costs and maximizing the efficiencies of every single person involved in the process. If we pull back more broadly from uh, you know, just eyes and look at healthcare in general, this is a way of uh, providing high quality healthcare to uh, people in developing world. Are there lessons that can be learned for other procedures? Uh, I, I, I think I think there really are. You know, one of the things, unfortunately, about our system, you know, I'd love to get back more to, you know, eye care and what's going on worldwide in eye. Um, you know, and, and the eye is, is a nice thing because we, we're, we understand our problems pretty well. You know, when you start looking at things like, you know, malaria, tuberculosis, um, chronic infectious diseases, there tends to be a very overlapping world of public health. And for the eye, we are really addressing the public health issues in a myriad of ways. We have a, uh, one of the main things that we're doing with the Himalayan Cataract Project is really creating systems for training. We, uh, have, we've been training doctors to do better cataract surgery than taking our best young cataract surgeons, training them in the subspecialties, things like pediatric ophthalmology or corneal transplant or retinal care. But on the other end, we'll also have a one-year program after nursing school to train ophthalmic nurses, a three-year program after high school to train ophthalmic technicians, a one-year program after eighth grade to train ophthalmic assistants. And we have this sort of multi-level way of training so that people really maximize and patients get care according to what they need. It's really a health care system that, uh, you know, we have very basic primary care and basic evaluations, and if people need something more, they get referred up the line. So that the retinal specialists are only really seeing people with retinal crises, and they're you know, busy all the time with state-of-the-art retinal problems which then again as a result has made our retinal surgeons in Nepal absolutely phenomenal, and we're now using Nepal as a training base to train retinal surgeons for Africa and other places in Asia. In America, unfortunately, Tom, we have a crisis intervention system. If you need a heart transplant, there's nowhere better to go than America, but if you're a heavy set teenager who lives a fairly sedentary life playing video games and eating, uh, eating processed foods, we do not have a health system that's looking to do any early intervention. And what we've been able to create in Nepal and we're exporting now to Africa and throughout Asia is really a health system for the eye at every level. But on the most dramatic of course, is the cataract surgery because there, there's really nothing in medicine or nothing like it that I can think of. It's a miracle like taking someone who's been blind for 15 years with a cataract and you do cataract surgery and one day after cataract surgery, 80% of our patients see well enough to pass the American driver's test without glasses. Mm-hmm. So they go from totally blind to seeing and the, um, you know, the book uh, Second Sons by David Rellin really you know, highlights, uh, you know, this incredible miracle and, you know, the fact that we can perform, you know, one doctor performing a hundred miracles like that a day and the just joyous atmosphere. But the, uh, the whole system really is created towards making it so that every child who needs spectacles to see at school and thrive at school will be, um, you know, screened and uh, receive the spectacles that they need. 
If you just joined us, you're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Dr. Jeff Tabin. He is a professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences and director of international ophthalmology at the John A. Moran Eye Center at the University of Utah. And he's a co-founder and chairman of the Himalayan Cataract Project. That project is, uh, and uh, Dr. Tabin and uh, his uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Sandu Kruit from Nepal, are uh, profiled in a new book, Second Sons, Two Doctors and Their Amazing Quest to Restore Sight and Save Lives by uh, David Rellin. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that joyous atmosphere. David Rellin, uh, he, he uh, quoting him, he says, this is restoring sight to the blind. You're doing that at a rate of 100 uh, a day. Uh, and it, he, he describes this as almost biblical. It's, it must be an incredible atmosphere. Yeah, it really is. You know, and we've been very pleased. We've been going to a few places. Uh, I still get just such a thrill on the first post-operative day, and particularly in a place where someone is not expecting to get their sight back. And we'll have... Uh, um, you know, we were just recently in a remote area of Ethiopia, and we did slightly over a thousand, uh, a thousand surgeries in a place where no one had ever done cataract surgery. And there's this blank look of disbelief that then just transforms into wonderment. And about four to five seconds after the patch comes off, there's this smile. And then people begin looking at their hands. They look at their loved ones, their relatives. Then they start to scream. And in Ethiopia, they make this wonderful sound called an ululation, which is almost like an Ethiopian yodel. And it's just the most pure joy I can imagine hearing on Earth. And uh, and then it's, it's really... I, I still get a big, big thrill out of it. And the smiles and the way we're doing an economic study with that group in Ethiopia where we had 600 people who were blind from cataracts and 600 from non-treatable other causes. Um, and we uh, restored sight to over 550 in the cataract cohort. And we're looking at their uh change not just in their lives but also their family and the community over the course of a year because there are a lot of indirect costs of the blindness as well the blind person can no longer carry on traditional roles in their community there needs to be a person who can take care of the blind person often it's a child who can't go to school because they have to walk a blind grandmother or parent around so we're really looking at what are the overall effects of uh, of site restoration to the economy, and for every hundred dollars invested in site restoration, how much is returned to the economy? And I believe the Himalayan Cataract Project. You, Dr. Reed, uh, you you have a lofty goal: eradication of unnecessary blindness. Yeah, it's and then we have some other wonderful organizations that we work with. Um, there are some other you know really great programs. But as I said, of the blindness in our world, eighty percent is completely preventable or treatable. And 50% is from completely treatable cataracts. So we are hoping that in the next uh, 20 years, we'll be able to completely overcome the cataract blindness problem through teaching, education, bringing the cost down, providing the resources. And uh, the other causes, Helen Keller International, and there's a World uh, River Blindness Program. Uh, There's a very big initiative on trachoma and uh, other uh, blinding diseases that need to be screened for. And we're hoping that in the next 20 years, we can get a real, real start on those, but really overcome the, uh, the treatable. I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit more about the infrastructure that you're trying to put in place. You're, you're trying to encourage uh, more Dr. Reitz, right? Yeah, well, that's our whole focus. It's really on the training. And, it, and as I mentioned, it's training at all levels. So our biggest thrust from the Himalayan Cataract Project, and I'll just actually give our website if people want to read more about it. It's www.cureblindness.org. Our biggest thrust is really training the leaders for the next generation of uh, of surgeons in the poorest places in the world. So training African doctors, training doctors from Burma, from Indonesia, from North Korea, from all over uh, the poorer sections of Asia and Africa, and trying to, trying to identify the real leaders who might be the next Dr. Ruid of their country. 
we have a great partner in Rwanda named John Karukier, a great, uh, great, great partner in Bhutan, uh, where iCare has really taken off. We've been running the iCare program in Bhutan now for 10 years. And uh, so that's our first level is trying to identify really the leaders um, and the best young ophthalmologists and encouraging them, training them, and equipping them. And then trying to, from there, develop systems to train ophthalmologists and develop residency programs. We're working hard. We have a partnership with the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgeons now to uh, really devote uh, manpower and resources to developing training programs in Ethiopia. And we have three, or Ethiopia has three eye surgery training programs. And then similarly, we're working to develop a better quality training program in Ghana for West Africa and also uh, for other places in East Africa. The next step is to train ophthalmic nurses, ophthalmic technicians, and ophthalmic assistants, that sort of ancillary worker who does a lot of the field work. And much of the population in these poor countries is still rural. And you can't expect a doctor to live in a rural area with a population of 4,000 people and not good schools. But if we take someone from that community, we train them in a one- or a three-year course to be a mid-level health worker focusing on the eyes, then they become a very big deal in their community. It's a very good job for them, and they help their whole community. We're talking with uh, Dr. Jeff Tabin, a professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences, director of international ophthalmology at the John A. Moran Eye Center at the University of Utah. He is a co-founder and chairman of the Himalayan Cataract uh, Project. Uh, more information on that at CureBlindness, what is it, dot .org? Dot .org? Yes. Or the book Second Sons. I think does a pretty great job of uh, talking about our development and kind of the, the crazy uh, <laughs> relationship between myself and my elder brother, Sandik Ruit, who really is the genius behind what we've been doing. We'll talk a little bit more about that after break and how uh, Dr. Tabin met Sandik Ruit. It really affected the course of his life. Um, uh, more following the break. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Oh Lord, you made many, many poor people. I realize. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, Dr. Jeff Tabin. He's a professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences and director of international ophthalmology at the John A. Moran Eye Center at the University of Utah. Uh, he is a co-founder and uh, chairman of uh, the Himalayan Cataract Project. More information on that at cureblindness.org. And there's a new book uh, out about uh, the project and uh, Drs. Tabin and Sandu Krit, who is his colleague, uh, it's called Second Sons, Two Doctors and Their Amazing Quest to Restore Sight and Save Lives. It's by uh, David DeRellin. And you're welcome to join the conversation here if you would like at 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us uh, by email at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, what if you talk a little bit about, uh, Dr. Steven, about to your meeting with Sandu Krit? This really s sort of changed the trajectory of at least your professional life. Yeah, it really did. I was looking for how to get involved in the developing world, how to get involved in international ophthalmology. I went and did my fellowship in Australia in conjunction with a fantastic program from Australia called the Fred Hollows Foundation, and they sent me over to work with uh, Dr. Ruit. And I had all the sort of fanciest pedigrees from the fanciest universities in America. I sort of prided myself on being a pretty good surgeon. And I came over to uh, Nepal, and I was absolutely blown away. Dr. Ruiz was one, just an unbelievable master surgeon. He has the most beautiful, gentle, precise hands. But also he had developed this amazing system for 
high-quality delivery of care in a very high volume and had this incredible team approach. And I got so excited watching what he was doing that I sort of blurted out, wow, you know, when I finish my fellowship, I want to come work with you. Now, Nepal has a very non-confrontational Buddhist attitude where they don't really contradict you. So, if, you know, Tom, you could be two blocks from somebody's house and point exactly the wrong direction and ask someone who's fluent in English, is Tom's house here? And point, and they would say yes because they don't want to contradict you. Even though, had you said, "Excuse me, can you tell me how to get to Tom's house?" they would have pointed in the opposite direction. So Dr. Rui didn't say no. He kind of said, "Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what you do." And uh, <laughs> I uh, finished my fellowship, and I came over, and I think he found me to be a little bit of an overly enthusiastic. Actually, I learned this from the book. I didn't actually realize it um, fully. <laughs> until I read uh, David Rellin's book, but I came over incredibly enthusiastic, wanting to help, and uh, Dr. Rui basically said, okay, well, we'll have you go to Bharatnagar, and you can teach in Bharatnagar this summer. And Bharatnagar is in the south east of the country, right on the border with India, where it's 100 degrees, 100% humidity, lots of mosquitoes, a very, very poor rural area, and uh, uh, it was during the monsoon. So every day it was just these torrential rains and very, very unpleasant conditions. And I thought he sent me there because there was so much need and I could really, this was a place I could make a change, but in fact he'd sent me there to get rid of me. And he had just thought that no American would possibly <laughs> spend more than two days, let alone three months, in Bharatnagar during the monsoon. And I looked at it as kind of a challenge, and wow, this is, uh, he's really giving me a, his trust to go work at this amazingly poor area. And it turned out that we were able to make a few changes. I was able to get the ophthalmic assistants to do a bit more. And by the time... Uh, by uh, the time I'd spent three months there, he was going, hold on, what is this guy? Who is he? And then he had uh, just been invited by the Chinese government to do the first big cataract program in Tibet. And we went to Tibet together and talked about the needs and how uh, there was this overwhelming problem of cataract blindness in uh, the Himalaya and between Nepal, Tibet, no one was doing cataract surgery in Bhutan. No Tibetans were doing cataract surgery in Tibet. We, uh, on that trip to Tibet, decided to team together and form the Himalayan Cataract Project. You you just you learned this from the book, apparently. Well, I looked, the, only thing I, the only thing I learned from the book was that he was trying to get rid of me in yeah. Bhutanagar. Yeah, that He exactly. didn't send me there because it was such yeah. a uniquely challenged place, and that he thought I could do something good there. He sent me there because he was sure it would get rid of me. There are, there are, you know, it's it's very much uh, praises your work. The book does. They, they show a few words. Uh, Doctor Ruit is described as grumpy. He can be grumpy, apparently. Well, he's an introverted man. He he's a incredibly brilliant, introverted man. You know, he never went to any schooling until he was eight years old. He spoke a couple of hill dialects, not a word of English, and very little Hindi and was all of a sudden thrust into a school in Darjeeling, India. He was, uh, you know, teased quite a bit by the kids at that school and was you know, really very much a hick outsider. And he's a very guarded, uh, careful, he's actually an amazing man as you get to know him. He's one of the warmest, really, I think, you know, there's, I don't think there's anyone on our planet who has done more individual good for other people than Sondagruit, mm. no yeah. one that I know of. But he can have a little bit of a prickly personality, and uh, it took, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I look at him as my elder brother, but it took quite a few years to uh, really develop our relationship. And Mr. Rellin describes you as, as can, that you can be mercurial, is how he puts it. Uh, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how you respond to that. Well, you know, I, I read things in the book, and I go, whoa, that, that guy's pretty crazy. I, did I really say that? And I go, yeah, I guess I did. You know, I'm a little bit uh, under-censored, perhaps, and uh, and Sandik is a little bit uh, kind of over-censored. Mm -hmm. So, so but, maybe but we've turned out to be a pretty good team. Yeah. 
I want to address the marketing of the book. I, I wonder if you worry a bit about this. Mr. Rellin, who unfortunately died last year, um, it, it was co-author of Three Cups of Tea. And, uh, of course, there have been some problems uh, discovered with that book. Uh, uh, reviewers are quick to point out that, that uh, there is no problem with Second Sons. But uh, the uh, the company, the Random House, I think the publisher, is uh, aggressively marketing this uh, sort of with three cups of tea on the on the you know the cover of this book. Yeah, you know, and it, it's I, I feel really bad. David Rellin was such a wonderful person to travel with. He was a very sensitive man, and a, took a lot of pride in being a good journalist, in being an honest journalist, and in trying to use his journalism to evoke positive change for our world. The controversy of three cups of tea, some some of your listeners may know, um, uh, David was the ghostwriter for Greg Mortensen for three cups of tea. And uh, there were several uh, inaccuracies and also some irregularities with the charity that were pointed out. And there was a big expose, that, including one on 60 Minutes about it. And so um, it, it's a really... Tricky line. Both uh, Random House and actually David Rellin hired an independent uh, fact checker to check even the most minor detail and fact in the book, which delayed the publication by a bit over a year. And then when, uh, unfortunately, David uh, David passed away in November before the book, uh, he had just turned in his final draft of the book. And unfortunately, he died before the book was published. And so it's been a little bit, uh, for me, it's been a little bit bittersweet because, one, I really like the book, but it's it, the publicity and the way it's being marketed, it hasn't, it's only been out a month, but taken off the way I was hoping it would. And the, um, the association with three cups of tea is pretty close, so I get a lot of uh, a lot of questions about uh, three cups of tea and the veracity there. And the other thing I can say is that you know, Second Sons has been so thoroughly fact-checked, and I think it reads a bit better, a little bit more of a fun book than uh, Three Cups of Tea. And uh, I, I hope you're, the people who read it will <laughs> make their own decision. But I, I'm very, very proud of what David did for the book. and very sad he's not here to promote it. And I'm not really involved, unfortunately, in, uh, in how it's being marketed. Right. I guess you, you have no control over, over that part of it. So, uh, well, uh, the... Uh... The place to go, of course, uh, pick up the book, Second Sons, good read, and uh, thirdly, fact check, as, as Dr. Taven is saying, and uh, go to cureblindness.org to find out more on the uh, Himalayan uh, uh, cataract project. Oh, just a, a few minutes left, and I, I wonder about the obstacles Dr. Reed encountered. Uh, some of those were from, you know, the, the medical profession, I think, and, and, and how he and you overcame those continuing obstacles and what lessons we might be able to face. Well, you know, he had, um, he had enormous obstacles, particularly when he first came back to Nepal from uh, having retrained in the Netherlands and then Australia. He was at a level so far beyond any other surgeon in Nepal, certainly any other ophthalmologist in Nepal, that uh, he was doing a technique that was well beyond what anyone else could do. And some of the senior ophthalmologists had a lot of concern. They felt that the lens implant technology wasn't appropriate for Nepal, and there was a lot of professional jealousy. And it's been interesting for me watching over 20 years how just the quality and everything and just being great every day has changed that and changed the uh, perceptions for uh, for Nepal, and now you know Sandik is without a doubt the you know leader of the medical community and certainly the, the ophthalmology community of Nepal. In terms of worldwide, we did some uh, randomized controlled trials. A friend of uh, mine, uh, David Chang, is the sort of avowed American master of cataract surgery. He's head of the cataract section for the American, American Academy of Ophthalmology and also was just the recent past president of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgeons. We brought Dr. Chang and over to Nepal and 
reproduced his state-of-the-art operating theater in Los Gatos, California, with the help of a, an American pharmaceutical company. And we did a controlled, prospective, randomized trial where patients would either go to Dr. Rui and his high-speed technique versus Dr. Chang, and we found that the results were exactly the same. We published that in uh, the American Journal of Ophthalmology, which is our most prestigious journal. We've also uh, uh, done several other studies showing the infection rates, the, the effectiveness of our training, and we've been... Um, on the forefront of doing prospective randomized clinical trials to really show the efficacy. And uh, we've slowly had the, uh, the medical establishment and the ophthalmology establishment taking notice and accepting what we're doing. Mm. We just have about two minutes left, and I, I want to take a sort of a, a random turn. I, I can't uh, finish the interview without asking you about this. When you were at Oxford, apparently you discovered something called the Oxford Dangerous Sports Club. <laughs> And that club yep. apparently was uh, at the beginning of bungee cord jumping? Yeah, well, you know, I, was, uh, I used to hang out and party with a group called the Oxford Dangerous Sport Club. They were a little intrigued by my climbing, and we had, uh, we just, you know, had a lot of fun together. And the events they were doing were all so off-the-wall crazy um, that, you know, I, would, I wouldn't have considered. They had just returned from doing the first-ever magma surfing where they stole stationary, identifying themselves as an Oxford seismographic expedition and went to an actively erupting uh, volcano with homemade asbestos surfboards. And they had just gotten out of the hospital from uh, sulfur inhalation. And we were at a party, and I mentioned I was looking to go climb in Erie and Jaya, New Guinea. And they said, oh, you must try vine jumping, referring to a ritual where they tie springy vines to ankles. And over the course of a drunken evening, we came up with the idea of urbanizing New Guinea vine jumping. And on April Fool's Day, 1979, the first ever bungee jump took place off of uh, the Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol, England. And unfortunately, we, we used these cords from um, the RAF that catch uh, uh, aircraft carriers uh, with the tail hooks, and uh, they're made by a company called the Bungie Company. And we used those, but we didn't have a good way of getting people back to the bridge. We got photographed. We were on the front page of the Daily Sun in England with a caption that said, Oxford Yo-Yos. <laughs> and then an American TV company uh, called That's Incredible then approached us, said, can you do it again? on our show, and David Kirk, the leader of the club, said, well, there wouldn't be much sport in that, would there? But they convinced us with enough money to go, and we had this just crazy party trip from Oxford to go to the Royal Gorge Bridge, and we jumped from the Royal Gorge uh, in the second bungee jump, and that was on the TV show That's Incredible, and uh, I actually wrote an article about that called The World's Most Dangerous Sportsman, which was published in Playboy. And a few months after that, I got an, uh, a letter through Playboy from a guy uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand, named Hackett, who said, what, uh, what did you do? How did you do it? And then six months later, Hackett Bungie Adventures opened in Christchurch, New Zealand. And that was how... <laughs> Wow. That was my one contribution to the world. <laughs> there you go. That's you know, incredible. You can't well, thousand blind people yeah. with one bungee jump. <laughs> there you go. Well, we're out of time. Uh, Second Sons is the book. You can check that out by David Rellin. And uh, the uh, the website for the Himalayan uh, Cataract Project is cureblindness.org. We've been talking with Dr. Jeff Tabin from the Moran Eye Center at University of Utah. A pleasure. Hey, Tom, Thank can you so I much. just one thing? I'm yeah. actually doing a book signing tonight in Salt Lake City at the uh, King's English Bookstore. Okay, that's tonight at the King's English Bookshop. Thank you so much, Dr. David. Okay, well, thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for thinking of me, and thank you to everyone who is listening. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KUSU FM HD1 Logan.